The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams. the Rotowire Prospect Podcast. I'm Clay Link here with Rotowire.com's lead prospect writer, James Anderson. We're going to be talking prospects, as always, on the Prospect Podcast, and pretty much exclusively that today, just um, trying to provide a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of an outlet, a little bit of a distraction for you listening and for you and I, James, as well. So we'll just dive right into it. Your dynasty rankings for rebuilders up a nice uh, pairing with the dynasty rankings for contenders, which complement the official site dynasty rankings by Ian Kahn. And really, this was all kind of the brainchild of our friend Jenny Butler. Uh, so those, you know, she kind of threw that out there when Ian's last update was published that she was looking for two separate sets because it is really. Uh, important to know where you're at in your competitive window in Dynasty Leagues. And I guess before we get into these rankings, James, just kind of what do you think about when Dynasty managers should rebuild? What do, when do they have to kind of come to that realization? Um, you know, I think that it's it's a really tough thing because there's, you know, a large percentage of people that play in Dynasty Leagues just 
it's it's tough for them to stomach the idea of I'm not going to contend to win this league for the next three years. Like that's a harsh reality, and you have to, you know, in the, it's a lot of time. A lot of time goes into dynasty leagues. The amount of work that goes into a rebuild, if if you do it right, like you you've really got to be. Uh, paying a lot of attention in season to picking prospects up off waivers to try to do trades when um, situations could could work in your favor. Uh, so it's not like you can just sit there and say, "Hey, I'm rebuilding. I don't really have to pay attention to this team for the next three years." Like you actually have to uh, put a lot of effort in, knowing that that effort won't pay off for you until uh, at least two years down the road, probably three or four years down the road. Um, but you also just have to be very realistic. I mean, to me, it's not fun at all to just every year finish middle of the pack in a league. And if that's the case with your team, then it probably means you just don't have the firepower at the top of your roster to really make a run at it. And you may look at your team and say, yeah, but I don't really have many young guys. Most of the guys on my team are, are older. Um, you know, that's that's kind of the harsh reality is – you, you probably are going to need to rebuild at that point. And you, you're going to have to sell some of those veteran players for not a ton. Uh, but if you're, if you're active about it and you, you propose trades at the right time, you can still get something for guys. Like, I mean, last year um, I traded like Joey Votto in a league for, for Austin Hayes. Uh, you know, I traded, Brian Dozier in a league for a third round pick in the first year player draft. Like you're not going to get a stud prospect for, for aging veterans. Um, but you, you have to get something. Um, otherwise you might as well cut guys and, and put them on waivers in favor of a prospect. Like if, if you can't get anything for, for an old player who's, who's well past their prime, uh, it's a better use of your roster to just cut them loose than to just hold them on, hold on to them and, and hope they reestablish value because you can be churning prospects. Uh, rebuilds are, are obviously very difficult. You, it's tough to get those top guys. I mean, to win a, to win a dynasty league, you need a ton of high end talent and you can't get those guys usually off waivers and they're tough to trade for. So, you know, it's 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 a long slog to rebuild in a dynasty league, but to me, there's just it's not fun at all to just be in the middle of the pack. I'd I'd rather be if I'm not contending, I'd rather at least have a bright future to look towards, even if it's only three or four years down the road. So, I mean, you you got you kind of got to look at your team, look at where you've been in the standings the last few years, and just be honest with yourself. Yeah, I'm in a tough spot in the RotoWire Dynasty Invitational because I've you know not only finished top half but top five in a twenty team league, but do I have enough to catch Ryan Bloomfield? Do I have enough to catch you and Ian and Eddie Almaguer? I don't know. So it's kind of in this limbo spot for me, <clears throat> and it's tough to grapple with that reality that I don't know if I have enough to get over the hump. You know, that's what taking Ian Happ in the you know, seventh or eighth round of a startup will do. And well, I, I mean, in your case, you're so that's like the the toughest case, right? Is where. Um, you know, you're, you you can kind of see the the league title if you if you squint a little bit, um, and so the, you kind of have nice to decide. To like, it's nice of you. I don't know if that's really true. <laughs> <laughs> well, like 
you know what what I said on the the PitchCon panel I was on um, with a bunch of other good analysts on on Sunday is like you just whatever you choose to do you can't half ass it so like you could you could just say hey like I'm I'm close I'd rather make a run at this than rebuild right away like if if it doesn't work out this year then then sure I'll I'll rebuild after this year but like. You, you can be on the outside looking in as a contender, but have the pieces on your roster to push you into that range. Like if, if you're willing to just say, Hey, like I, I want to make a run at it. I'm willing to trade a young, talented prospect for a win now piece that I think can help put me over the hump. And if you make enough of those moves, then all of a sudden you can be right in that mix. And I don't know if that, is how you would describe your situation. Um, if you have enough pieces where you could still kind of make a push, but, um, you know, you, you don't want to just sort of say, Hey, I've probably got like the fourth best team. I can't realistically finish top two, but I also don't want to rebuild. Like I I feel like you want to either make a push to win or just kind of embrace the rebuild. Yeah, I got Herman Marquez and DJ LeMayhew, so you know I'm in pretty good shape. But no, I um, it is tough. I think I'll stick with it though, but just because you know I want to make things tough on on you top dogs. I don't want you guys to have it easy. Um, but I think there is something to that. Just league integrity. We've seen, you know, in some dynasty keeper leagues, those bottom feeders just completely tank and give pieces away. It seems like. There is that fine line where, yeah, you want to rebuild, but maintaining the league integrity and kind of avoiding those kingmaker sell-off deals. You know what I mean? Like you want to rebuilding is important, but you want to hold out for good pieces. Yeah, and when I did the contending rankings, I basically said if if you're in the top third of your league, um, these are these are kind of for you. Like just top half doesn't really do it for me, but top third, I mean, you can catch a break. You can, you know, somebody on your team, um, you know, like having DJ LeMahieu on your team before last season probably didn't really seem like much of anything, but all of a sudden he he has a big year. Um, yeah, you you never want to make it easy on those top teams. So I'm, I'm definitely not saying that you should embrace a rebuild, but. Yeah. Um, it's going to be tough, yeah. though. I mean, being in that limbo is a terrible spot to be in, but I do want to kind of at least push everybody to be there, to put their best team, you know, on their active roster every week. So uh, I will be doing that, but maybe if after this season or next year, may have to take a long, hard look in the mirror and potentially face a rebuild. But teams that are already doing that, James, and making moves, is there like a certain age that you want to target? Like, is there a kind of a cutoff where you should probably above a certain age, you shouldn't really be targeting those players if you're rebuilding. So I, I did a startup uh, earlier this off season, the uh, prospects 365 one that uh, Ray Butler set up. And I was the only team in this league. Um, well, I was, I was one of two teams that, that sort of took the, I'm rebuilding from year one approach. Um, and the number that I kind of had in mind to myself was just, I'll, I'll still be interested in MLB players if they're 25 and under, because then I, I sort of figure I've got at least 
four or five prime years remaining from those guys. Um, that's obviously an arbitrary number. Uh, you shouldn't just <laughs> look at one arbitrary number and say this is the cutoff. Mm-hmm. But to me, I think, you know, if, if you're looking at winning your league like two or three years from now, you want your best players to still be in their late 20s, I think. Um, you know, once you're kind of relying on guys in their 30s, I think that can be uh, dicey. But, um, you, you know, I, I don't think when you rebuild, like I think there's sort of this feeling that when you rebuild in a dynasty league, that just means you have to trade every single big leaguer for a prospect. Uh, I don't think you should trade guys like Ozzy Albies or Matt Olson um, or Yohan Mankata if you're rebuilding, like rebuild around those guys. Uh, they still have a long uh, period of, of really high-end production, in my opinion. So, I mean, if you can't rebuild in three or four years, then, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that, it shouldn't require six or seven years for you to rebuild your dynasty team. So, um, I know it's tempting to just unload every single big leaguer and, and get a bunch of prospects and feel really good about your farm system, but you can still build around quality young big leaguers. I think that's a, that's a big misnomer. I'm picturing the end of the last dance and that the bulls went into a rebuild dot, dot, dot thing. Um, when I'm looking at my own rebuild, thinking how long is this actually going to take? Because you don't know exactly, but I think, yeah, if you do look at the windows realistically and keep yourself, uh, keep your nice young core base intact, Obviously, those are going to be the pieces that attract a lot of trade attention, but and maybe you find a deal you like. But I do think you're right that build around those young pieces you have. You don't necessarily need to deal those pieces as you rebuild. But James, what do you advise those who are rebuilding to do with starting pitching and pitching in general? I'm noticing that on your <clears throat> dynasty rankings for rebuilders, that Garrett Cole is the top dog here at 36. Looks like. Yeah, it was really tough for me to rank pitchers on this list because I just kept I I kept wanting to like put them lower and lower and lower because um it's just not a great recipe. Uh like I don't think you should completely avoid picking up pitchers when you think that they're good and they're going to be high value players down the road. Um but like if you're rebuilding and you have Garrett Cole on your roster, it should you should be creating a bidding war and unloading him. Um, you just the worst thing you can do in a rebuild is be the one holding a, a high end pitcher when they need surgery, you know. I mean you want to get something for them before that moment comes. And you know, it was really tough to sort of slot in the, those other guys like you know 25 year old walker bueller or a 25 year old shane beaver 24 year old jack flaherty where do you put those guys if you're rebuilding because on the one hand if they stay healthy um they could be really awesome starting pitchers for another 10 years uh even if they were to get hurt like maybe they get hurt this year and they're ready to return and everything by the time you're ready to compete. Um, but I still, it's, it's tough because you, you really want to build with young hitting. Um, yeah. Slotting in the pitchers was really difficult for me. I think my advice is to just, when you're talking about a 
MLB pitcher who's at kind of the peak of their value, I really think you got to try to move them. Um, and that goes for starters. It goes for relievers. But you don't want to just trade them at any cost either. So it's just it becomes a really difficult thing to do. Um, you know, people that are playing dynasty leagues for a long time are, are going to be pretty good at this aspect of it um, in terms of just not settling for a certain price on a guy just because you want to trade that player. Um, I I've been rebuilding for a couple of years now in TDGX. And when I embraced the rebuild, I traded Justin Verlander. Um, I ended up getting Gary Sanchez and a draft pick for him. Um, and I still, I still don't know if that was the right decision for me because Verlander went on to have another couple really good years. And I don't know if there might have been a time in there if I had sold him like maybe mid-season as kind of a kingmaker type of piece to one of the top two teams. Maybe I could have got a little bit more than Gary Sanchez. Uh, but at the same time, like we could flash forward six, seven, eight months from now, and the idea of getting someone like Gary Sanchez for Verlander could be laughable, like if, if he sort of falls apart or if the end appears to be near. So it's just, it's really tough. It's tough to know when to sell guys, what to settle for as a return, because if you're a rebuilding team, everyone sort of knows that you're looking to, to trade your pitchers. So it just, it becomes really difficult. You have to be a good negotiator. You have to kind of find the right team in your league that needs that pitcher the most. And um, if you notice that a team in your league is making some win now moves, that that's the team you should be contacting via email or via text and just say, Hey, like I've got Josh Hader, I've got Kirby Yates or I've got, um, you know, Max Scherzer or whoever, uh, that's the, the owner you should be targeting uh, because they're obviously making moves and that move might push them over the top in their eyes. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the pitcher aspect of these rankings were, were by far the toughest part because you don't want to build with pitching, but at the same time, you don't want to just give it away either. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to you know, drumming up a, a bit of a bidding war for some of these guys. I'm wondering if you have any insights into the right way to do that, uh, the non-annoying way. Over the years, <laughs> you know, I have uh, dealt with some owners who have tried to do that, but it's kind of like frustrating to deal with because you're like, it feels like they're trying to strong arm you a little bit. But is there any way that, that any tips you have for kind of, you know, drumming up a little bit of a bidding war and making sure you get the best offer possible? In in my experience, the trade block typically works pretty well. Um, you know, the, what you, what you don't want to do is you don't want to trade, uh, an impact player for right now. That's going to swing, uh, the standings in the league or swing who wins the league without every owner in the league, knowing that that player is available. Yes. Yes. Um, so I think if you're about to you have move your chance piece, to make a, to acquire, right. them. yeah. Yeah. If, if you're about to move someone like Garrett Cole, You'd, you'd be doing yourself a, a big disservice if you didn't make sure that the other owners who could really use Garrett Cole uh, don't have a chance to, to come in and, and make an offer if they, if they want. Um, so I, I've, I've had success just updating my trade block and saying, hey, I'm 
getting some interest on Josh Hader, uh, looking for one quality young hitter in return, not looking for two for ones, not looking for three for ones. Um, and then just, you know, give it 12 hours or so. And you have to have um, a little patience because you, you want to give people time to send their offers in. Right. Best off. And, and I mean, sometimes you'll just look at the other contending teams and maybe you just look at their entire roster and you just don't see any way that they would be able to top the offer you have. And and you can kind of do it that way. Um, but I I just think it's, it's important when it's a, it's a big time piece that's going to really impact who wins your league that year. Uh, you can, you don't have to try that hard to generate some sort of a bidding war. Um, or at least get multiple offers on the table that you can evaluate if if you just update your trade block. Maybe you have been in contact with some of the guys at the top of the standings all year about other players, and you want to just hit them up privately and do it that way. I mean, that can work too. But um, you know, if it's a big time piece, I think just letting people know that hey, this guy might be moved in the next twenty four hours that that typically works. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. I again, I, I think it's. Well, I know it's, you know, you want to hold out for the best deal. There's no, you don't want to cave to any pressure that the other owners, you know, putting on you and trying to talk you into it. But at the same time, you want to be reasonable and not like a jerk to the, to the other owner, the trade partner, because you may ruin your your trade prospects with that with that owner in the future if you're continually, you know, you're, you kind of settle on something. No, oh, I need a little bit more. Oh, I need a little bit more. If you're constantly doing that. Uh, can be and, very frustrating. But, yeah, there's definitely etiquette involved with yeah. the language you use in your trade talks. Like, you should never say, "Like, all right, I think we have a deal," and then and then yeah, go and up then and go back and say, oh, "I need more." Um, you should just say, "Okay, I think I think we're close." Um, I'm just gonna do my due diligence and check with other owners. Like, just be very. Um, careful with the words you use, and don't ever take less than you feel like you should. I'm not saying that, but just yeah, have that etiquette. And I I hate it when people ask, "Hey, what do you think about this offer?" And then you say, "Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in that." And then they like, yeah, exactly. say, "All right, we'll throw in something else." <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the worst, like, man. Yeah, right. You know, I also, I've been guilty of this in the past, but also the, uh, what would it take to get this player off you? Um, <laughs> that's pretty annoying. I mean, well, the, come, at, Ian, come at the person with an offer if you're going to them. Ian R always harps on this, and it's it's really important advice, even if you're just trading in a redraft league. Like, look at the other person's roster first. Yeah. Look at where they're at in the standings. Look at where, where they're at on the positions, um, like which positions they have a surplus in and everything. Category and then make an then make an offer. Like just try to put yourself in their shoes. It doesn't take very long. You can just look at their roster for like two or three minutes, and you can figure out. Oh, he doesn't. He definitely isn't interested in my second baseman. He might be looking for saves though. Like, don't just send out a bunch of offers without looking at another person's team to see if they would even be interested in that player. Yeah, and also don't like publicly or even privately <laughs> like uh, reach out and kind of. Uh talk crap if a guy doesn't offer offer a counter offer like sometimes i just don't don't like your offer enough to bother with a counter offer get off 
get off. Yeah, of you, there's you know I mean? like, there's no obligation. Yeah, no to obligation. Engage in trade talks and like a, a just straight up decline without a counter is basically a keep moving. I'm not interested. Yeah, and you just accept that. You don't get all mad when somebody doesn't counter because they're no, yeah they're no in no spot to have to to trade with you just because you threw out a trade offer. There's no obligation to. Uh, throw out a counter offer and some people i feel like are like a little disrespected by that but that's uh, craziness support for this podcast comes from wild turkey kentucky straight bourbon whiskey let's tune in to their one-on-one with jamal a real bartender from old fourth ward in atlanta i really get into the backstory of whatever i'm pouring out of respect there are literally years of experience behind these bottles wild turkey same recipe since 1942 if you want a true classic this is what you want to order Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Uh, James, I'm a little surprised to see Jason Dominguez not higher than he is on this dynasty list for rebuilders. Uh, 58 overall here. He is only 17 years old. So how, how did you settle on this spot for Jason Dominguez? Yeah, someone asked on Twitter why he wasn't higher for rebuilding teams and it, it comes back to what I was saying at the top about like, you don't have to rebuild with just prospects. Like you can rebuild a, around guys like Ramon Laureano and Joey Gallo and Carlos Correa. Like these guys are in their mid twenties. Um, they're really good right now. We know they're really good. Uh, so you're getting basically, like you would get Ramon Laureano's entire prime basically by the time Jason Dominguez gets to the big leagues. So Dominguez could definitely be better than Laureano, but you know, if he's if Dominguez is like the face of your rebuild, then you're saying, Hey, I'm just not gonna compete for the next four years. Uh that's <laughs> that's a long time to wait. Uh I could see the case. Like, I mean, in certain situations there, there's room for a guy like that to be a bit higher. Like, um, yeah, I'm not saying just never consider trading him for someone. I have like 10 spots higher than him on these rankings, but, uh, as good as we think he is, I think putting a guy that's never played a pro game in the top 60 here is that's, that's enough of, that's enough respect, I think. Yeah, that's um, enough of an endorsement, I'd say. Yeah. Um, for a seventeen-year-old, I. The thing is, too, is you mentioned like he's no sure thing. These guys, as good as we think they are, the bust rate is insanely high. So you may wait four years and get nada, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's it's dangerous to just say I'm rebuilding with just prospects, like. Obviously, the very elite prospects, like I think Wanda Franco is, he's a sure thing to be a good baseball player. Like, I, he might not be a sure thing to be an MVP candidate, but, you know, he's as close to a sure thing to be a, a really good big leaguer as it gets. And I think like Gavin Lux and Julio Rodriguez are pretty close to sure things. But all you have to do is get down to like, you know, Royce Lewis at seven. Jason Dominguez at eight and all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about guys that we think are going to be good players, but they're not sure things and they're top 10 prospects. So once you get into like the twenties and thirties, these guys are far from sure things. So it's just, it's dangerous to just assume I'll just get a bunch of good prospects and that'll be my team. Uh, 
there's, you know, it's, it's underrated just how tough it is to make it in the big leagues. So when you're trading a 24, 25 year old young hitter, who's already proven he's a good big league hitter, like those guys aren't easy to find. Exactly. And you mentioned Carlos Correa. Uh, I kind of was lamenting on the XM show last week about how I would trade my first round pick in RDI for your what, seventh or eighth round pick in Bo Bichette. Correa was my guy a few years ago at six overall in that RDI startup. And it's it's really hard to know how to value this guy right now because all the missed time, he is still young. Uh, but yeah, I'm a little worried about Correa and uh, he's got a lot of time to turn it around, but he's a really hard guy to value right now for Dynasty. Yeah, I, he's he's definitely one of the tougher guys. Um, you know, just no idea what what the durability is going to look like over the next three or four years for him. Uh, I think he might benefit from like a change of scenery. Um, I just I don't feel like he's ever been like on the exact same page with the Astros, uh, specifically with just regards to the. Um, treatments of, of his various injuries and stuff like that but yeah he's still just 25 years old even a even like a down year for Carlos Correa is still a pretty good year uh on a per plate appearance basis and I, I still think um you know some of his best years might still be ahead of him so but I wouldn't argue if you said like hey I I just don't trust him from uh from a health standpoint I want to trade Carlos Correa for Jason Dominguez like I wouldn't do that, but I wouldn't say you're crazy to do that if if you just want to cash them out and and move on. So looking at it, it seems like Correa is free agent eligible after next year. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that's right. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I do think maybe a change of scenery would be good. I I know he was really you know outspoken in his defense of the team after the whole sign stealing business came to light, but. Um, yeah, it's just very weird what's kind of gone on with him with the, you know, the massage gone wrong and just all the missed time. I'm worried about that back, but I do think it's reasonable to have him here. I'd probably have him a little lower personally, but um, yeah, there's still reasons for for hope, certainly with Carlos Correa. James, your other article this week, of course, continuing on with the rankings dile- Ranking Dilemmas series. Um, it sounds like Jonathan Stiver had a little bit of a forearm scare. Yeah, he was my pick this week for a pitcher I might be too low on, and he's uh, the best pitching prospect in the White Sox system after Michael Kopech. Um, and he's got a, a mid-90s fastball, improved with his control last season, but the last news I could find on him is that that forearm issue, which he dealt with in early March and Rick Ar- Rick Hahn said it, they don't think it's a long-term concern. I think you should never trust a team when they talk about the severity of a pitcher's injury. Like there, there's just countless examples of teams saying they're not worried about a guy and then he gets Tommy John like two weeks later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just, I just don't know how, how healthy his arm is. And if he ends up being fine, if it, if it is just a minor issue and, and he's totally fine, then he'll probably end up moving up like over 50 spots. Uh, but he's already 23 years old. So if he needs Tommy John surgery, he might not get to the big leagues till he's like 26. So uh, I'm just kind of 
taking a more pessimistic view of, of Stever right now uh, because of the, the fact that the last news we had on him was he was dealing with a forearm strain and that certainly could end up leading to, to surgery down the road. But um, really talented pitcher. He had a breakout year last year. Uh, if he's if he's healthy, I think he'll be on the fast track. What about that uh, Chris Archer news this morning, by the way? Completely unrelated, but, uh, well, I guess it's somewhat related just given pitcher injuries, but another thoracic outlet syndrome uh, victim. Hate to see that for, for Chris Archer. Uh, but, yeah, that's just an, another thing to worry about with pitchers that we don't often talk about, but thoracic outlet surgery is – Really scary for a pitcher's future, so hoping the best for Chris Archer. Uh, James, when we get to this level of the prospect rankings, we're talking about guys who could end up in utility role. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's just the nature of things, and you know some of these guys will inevitably end up moving around a fair amount. Do you see that with Jake Cronenworth and or Taylor Walls? Yeah, they are a couple middle infielders, who are both once in the Rays organization together. Cronenworth obviously traded in that uh, Tommy Pham deal this past offseason. Um, they are my two picks for guys who might be too high on this week, and it's because of that uncertain future. They, you know, I, I think I like Cronenworth's bat a, a little bit more. I think he actually might end up being a better everyday second baseman option for the Padres than Jerks and Profar, but I just don't see them going that route, uh, at least in the short term. And then you've still got veterans like Greg Garcia and Brian Dozier sort of hanging on. And um, it's just, it's tough to know when Cronenworth would get everyday playing time. The fact that he's also a two way player and he can be a reliever for them, that also makes me a little pessimistic about him ever truly getting everyday playing time at second base. Uh, then with walls, you know, he's, he's in the most loaded organization in baseball. He's not a plus runner despite his high stolen base totals in the minors. He's probably more like a 50, 55 runner, uh, does not have plus power. will probably never have plus power. So it's gotta be his bat that sort of drives fantasy value and, the fact he's a switch hitter, the fact he can play all over the diamond, that helps him in terms of maybe just getting him more plate appearances. But I still, with with the Rays, it's just really tough to see a guy with his, you know, he's making the most of the tools he has, but I just can't picture him ever profiling as a guy that needs to be playing every day for that team. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, one week from today, James, is the day one, at least, of the MLB first-year player draft. Very much looking forward to that. You, I know, have a lot in the a lot of work already in progress for that draft. We're going to have notes going live in real time. Uh, notes up for every first-round pick, right? Even the comp picks. Yep, we'll we'll do uh, we'll do all the picks. Might as well, right? I mean, it's only five rounds. It'd be be silly to just yeah. not get something up on everyone. Not really viable. Or realistic to do that in a regular year when they're what forty something. No, <laughs> um, not those guys. A lot of them don't even get added to the database. But only five rounds, of course. Yeah, we'll be covering that extensively. Notes on every single player. Looking forward to that. Uh, working with you in the office next week and watching that live. I know 
ESPN is doing their own broadcast this year and, and um, using some footage from our friends at Prospects Live. So that's very cool. By the way, I think it was one of those guys at Prospects Live. Maybe it was Ralph Lifshitz or Eddie Almaguer. I'm not sure. But they I saw them suggest on Twitter that uh, Asa Lacey, not really a lock anymore to go to the Marlins. Do you see that? And what did you make of it? Oh, I mean, I, I I guess I'm not that surprised by the idea that he could fall out of the top three. The Marlins have so much pitching already. We saw the Zach Gallon trade kind of told us sort of where their head's at with regard to the makeup of their organization, where it's just really heavy on pitching, really light on impact hitting. So, you know, if, they, if they're not in love with Lacey... Uh, they they clearly got a lot of pitching in the org already, so I could see them going with a, a high upside high school hitter like Zach Veen or or just taking the the safe college hitter and Nick Gonzalez. I mean that there's plenty of good options there at three if they don't want to go with with Lacey. So that's that's not super surprising just given everything the Marlins already have in the organization. Very nice. Yeah, I thought that was just kind of interesting because I think we talked. Last week about how that was a logical landing spot, but maybe they will pass on that arm for a position player. And you mentioned Veen, uh, Ed Howard. They're the among the best prep hitters in this class pretty easily, would you say? To me, they're the clear top two guys. I know there are – there's a as with really the only thing everyone agrees on is like Torkelson and Martin at the top. Uh, and then there's just diverging opinion. Like Asalasi's not even the consensus number one pitcher in the draft uh, by uh, people who rank this stuff for fantasy. I think he's the consensus number one pitcher by for most MLB teams. But um, there's a lot of diverging opinions among the high school class. I think Zach Veen is the guy that you would see highest on most people's lists. I have Ed Howard over him, but they're both going to slot in within like three or four spots of each other on the top 400. I'm expecting them both to kind of slot in right around 70th overall, which is where we've got like Brandon Marsh, Helio Ramos, Masail Urbina. So they'll, they'll slot in right around there. Uh, I like Howard more than Bean because I think I buy the hit tool a bit more. Um, like I think he's a, a better bet to hit like 280 than Veen is. Veen has the on-base potential. So like if you're playing in an OBP league or points league, I could see him being over Howard. Uh, but I, I think Howard's just going to be a guy that is good at everything. Like he, he's the best shortstop in the draft. He is going to hit. I think he's going to hit for a high average. I think he's going to hit for 25 plus homers eventually. Uh chip in 10 to 15 steals so just a a really solid player across the board Veen could probably get to 30 plus homer power um but he's a he's a big kid i'm, I'm just i'm not sold that he's going to be more than like a 260 hitter uh but i think that the obp will be pretty high howard probably has speed that will age better than beans um so i mean it, it's close to me but I, I just think howard is is the better overall player and how do you feel about Pete Crow Armstrong versus Austin Hendrick? Do you have a an opinion on that? Do you fall on a certain side of that fence? Yeah, this is another one where I, I think I'm going a bit against the grain. Uh, I think most people like Austin Hendrick 
he has that crazy bat speed, the 70 grade type of raw power, um, impact tool that a lot of people fall in love with, but he's a, a high school hitter with hit tool concerns. I'm always lower on those guys. Like I don't even buy like the best, the best high school hitters. Like they're, they're not locks to, to hit the way we think they are. So the guys that come in with questions, like with legitimate questions, they're far from a lock to, to hit as much as, as people highest on them think they will. And, and Hendrick kind of falls in that boat for me where I think he could be kind of a Nolan Gorman type of prospect where there's, there's a ton of power. Um, but you know, he could run into trouble against more advanced pitching. I could see the batting average being you know, pretty shaky at times for him. Pete Crow Armstrong, he's not a lock to hit either, but I love the, like, I, I often use speed as kind of a, a tiebreaker. Um, Pete Crow Armstrong's a plus runner. He's going to remain a plus runner. That's really useful. He's also got a chance to be a plus defensive outfielder. He's got a plus arm. He's, he could be a plus defender in center field. So that kind of buys him, um, you know, buys his bat a little more leeway. And I, I think he could end up being at least like an above average hitter. And I think there's there's more power there with him. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Corbin Carroll from last year in this regards where people just sort of think it's like 40 power, 45 power. Like I, I think he's got enough leverage there um, to where he could be a 20-plus homer guy down the road. So I just think there's there's more working in Pete Cromstrom's favor than with Hendrick. And I'm not even sold Hendrick has the higher ceiling because he's not going to run a ton. Like It's just the power. Everyone falls in love with the bat speed and the power. But that's really carrying the profile. If he doesn't hit, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah, definitely. That's that's interesting. Look forward to seeing where those guys fall next Wednesday. And James, you noted here that you know, and then our outline that the well, just some examples of the top prep hitters by year, and just in the past seven or eight years or so, a fairly high success rate. You look at Austin Meadows, Kyle Tucker, Royce Lewis, Jared Kelnick, but also some busts in there. Alex Jackson, Mickey Moniak. Last year, Riley Green, still, you know, the jury's out on him. But uh, what do you make of that recent history with top prep hitters? Yeah, I mentioned this. This is kind of just a a follow-up to a tweet I saw from Alex uh, Juicy Jensen. He's a a good dude. He does some stuff for Prospects Live. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at Jensen underscore Juicy. And I saw him mentioning how high he was on Robert Hassel. Robert Hassel is the quote-unquote consensus top prep hitter in this draft uh, from a hit tool standpoint. Um, and he mentioned like Kellenic, Royce Lewis, as like and Corbin Carroll uh, as reasons why he loves Robert Hassel. But you know, I think to me the guy that Hassel reminds me the most of if we go from 2013 through 2019 of all those guys that were the quote-unquote top prep hitter in their class Hassel reminds me the most of Mickey Moniak uh and you know we've sort of seen how that worked out where people just assumed it was like a 70 grade hit tool and then they just assumed that that would carry the profile he'd be a everyday center fielder turns out it wasn't a 70 grade hit tool and the physical tools just aren't there to kind of make up for that. Like he's not going to hit enough power to make up for that. Um, the speed has ticked down, I think since he signed. And so 
I'm worried about that with Hassel. Like, yeah, if he if he's a 300 hitter, then he'll be useful in fantasy. Uh, that's goes without saying. He could be a 15 homer, 15 steal guy, and as long as he's hitting 300, like you'll want him in all your formats. But if he is just like a 275 hitter who's hitting 12 to 15 homers and stealing 10 to 15 bases, then that becomes a lot less exciting. Uh, and I think that that's a possibility. I'm lower on hassle, eventually tapping into 20 plus homer power without a, a swing change. I just think it's a very level swing and he's not a plus runner. So that he doesn't really have that to fall back on the way Pete Crow Armstrong does. Um, so I would just, I would just caution against just saying, Hey, Jared Kalanick was the top prep hitter. Royce Lewis was a top prep hitter. Uh, so Robert Hassel is going to be really good. I mean, if we go back to 2013, Austin Meadows, 2014, Alex Jackson, 2015, Kyle Tucker, 2016, Mickey Moniak, 17, Lewis, 18, Kellenick, 19, Riley Green. We have to go all the way back to 2013 to find a guy from this subset who is a impactful big leaguer. And that that's like sort of a best case scenario. And so even if it, everything works out, think about that lead time. Like Lewis got drafted in 2017. He's not super close to the majors. Like he's fairly close. Kyle Tucker got drafted in 2015. We're still waiting for him to be an everyday player. Like when you're taking a high school hitter, not only is it risky, like in terms of a guy like Moniac, but you're just, even in a best case scenario, you're waiting like five years for that guy to establish himself in the majors. Hey, I'm going to need you to take it easy on Moniac, James. He's the center of my <laughs> RDI rebuild. Uh, that's, that's where I'm what I'm looking at if I do start that rebuild. I mean, I do have him 20 team dynasty league, but yeah, he's very much fringe and you you don't sound optimistic. Um uh, even though he did show some improvements, right? Moniac last year, you you're not really buying Well, him. he he improved enough to like to remain quote quote still, a prospect. Still, still be mentioned as a prospect, yeah. <laughs> uh Fair he, enough. He you know, he he can't hit lefties. So, best case Fair scenario, enough. probably probably a strong side platoon, like I don't know, left fielder at this point. Like the defense hasn't been as advertised either. So, well, nice. Well, I will throw you some quick hitters to wrap up the show today. Jordan Walker versus Isaiah Green. What do you think? Walker is a big time power hitter. He's like he's like six five. He's got a cannon of an arm. And Isaiah Green is more of like a center fielder, 6'1", 180, uh, plus speed. I have Walker uh, a couple spots ahead of Green, but it's just kind of like a beauty in the eye of the beholder one where you want the power hitter who might hit like 250, 260, or do you want the kind of raw but more toolsy center fielder who if it all works out, then they're like a five-category guy. It's it's a tough call. I mean, I think Walker's got a much better hit tool than like a guy like Reese Hines from last year's draft. Uh, he was improving with his contact before things got shut down. Um, so I you know I, I give Walker the slight edge, but those are two really exciting, really toolsy guys who aren't getting quite as much hype as as the ones we've talked about so far. And finally, are there any other names, you know, guys that you're kind of falling for as you do more research for next week's draft? So two guys that I'm 
I'm in love with under the right circumstances are Mason Wynn and Kevin Pareda. Uh, both of them, to me, their their dynasty value is just very dependent on what the team that drafts them does with them after drafting them. Mason Wynn's a two-way guy uh, who is like 5'11", but he might have three-plus pitches. He's definitely got two-plus pitches. Um, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of teams probably prefer him more as a pitcher. But if a team drafted Win and just said they were going to keep him at shortstop, they were going to tell him to stop pitching, they just want to develop him as a, as a shortstop all the way, then all of a sudden I might win might be third for me among the prep hitters in this class behind Howard and Bean. He's just got he's got the type of explosive tools that you just can't find very easily in the draft anymore. Uh, plus runner, chance for plus power, uh, just kind of can do it all type of guy. Um, so it just kind of depends what the team that drafts Mason Wynn does with him. If they deploy him as a pitcher or a two-way player, then I'll move him down my rankings. I've kind of got him in the middle area, just on the on the slight chance that a team might really love him in the field. And, and you know, I think five eleven guy that throws as hard as he does, uh, that's as young as he is, pretty high risk from an injury standpoint. So if I were a team, I would look long and hard about developing him as just a shortstop, um, and that would really improve his value. With Pareda, he's a catcher. Um, but I, he's not a very good defensive catcher. So if a team drafts Pareda and just says, hey, we're moving him straight to third base, that's where he's going to develop. He's not going to catch a day in pro ball. Uh, we just love the bat. We're going to fast track the bat. Then I'd, I'd fall even more in love with Pareda because his bat speed, uh, the exit velocities he generates are just absolutely elite from this class. I think he's one of the best prep hitters in the class, but if a team tries to make him a catcher, then that means you're adding like two years to the lead time. Uh, those defensive struggles could go with him to the plate. So I would be much lower on him if a team drafts him and, and tries to develop him as a catcher. Interesting. Yeah. Mason Wynn, you, you mentioned, and you talked about sounds very intriguing. Um, definitely going to be keeping an eye on him. Check out James's dynasty rankings for rebuilders, his, his ranking dilemmas, and also the amateur board, of course, up at rotowire.com as well. Get all set for next week's draft. Very much looking forward to covering that with you, James. You do all the hard work, but I'll, I'll be here too, uh, watching along with you. It'll be fun. James, we have a company Zoom meeting here in about eight minutes. And I'm going to be honest with you, my heart's not really in the hip-hop draft this week, so we're going to just go ahead and skip that. I'm going to make the call. But we'll continue on with that next week, uh, and I look forward to talking with you, James. And that'll be right before, a few hours before the draft that we'll record. So uh, looking forward to that. You all be well. Take care of yourselves, and hope you'll join us next week on the Rotowire Prospect Podcast. <laughs>
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.